this wallpaper is lovely. I know our podcast <laughs> listeners can't see, but there's sort of a enlarged modern interpretation of a Tuileries thing. I think yeah, it's happening. a little Paisley esque, maybe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, this is our pod is best when we are talking about things our listeners cannot can't see. see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always find that it's effective. the theater of the mind. It's the theater of the mind. Imagine. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. I'm so excited to have Debbie Weinstein, Vice President YouTube and Global Video Solutions at a small startup called Google. Indeed. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. We are super psyched. Yeah. So we're here at CES. Yes. How are we doing? We're we're okay? CES is off to a great start. I mean, it's the first week back for many of us of the working year. It is like the, the, you know, hammer to the head. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Lots of hotel spaces with lots of weird forced air. And And, it's a challenging space to be in. And the design aesthetic. Yes, (laughs) yes. So let's start here. Talk to me a little bit about your role because I'm always fascinated by the work that people do. Yeah. Uh, and in your case, it's super interesting. So let's let's begin there. Sure, absolutely. I have a role that sits between our product and engineering teams and our scaled sales teams. Mm. My job is basically to interpret what it is that marketers and agencies are needing YouTube and Google's video offering to provide for them and make sure we build that with our product and engineering teams. CMO whisperish in there, CMO right? CMO whisperish. Whisper. More like I would say product engineering whisperer. Pro- Okay, okay. And then interpreting what our product and engineers are building to make sure that they are meeting market requirements. Okay. And the market requirements in your definition is uh, agencies, brands, et cetera, and creators? Agencies and brands, very specifically. Uh, Creators are part of that mix, but there's a separate team that really focuses on creators. Got it. Okay. So you really occupy that space in the agency marketing industry zone. I do. I'm very focused on agencies are a critical partner for us because they are our scaled mechanism by which we connect with many, many marketers, small, medium, large. We do for the moment still have some value. You have a tremendous amount of value. Just for the minute, you know. One of the things I'm sure we'll talk about is that you're also developing really effective tools, I think, that help marketers make sense of a more complicated landscape than ever. We are trying and the check for that comment is in the mail. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, So... What is the day in, day out work? Like, you know, you get up in the morning, you're kind of like, all right, today's kind of big thing I got to focus on is X, Y, Z. My day really splits, I would say, into three parts, kind of part one, not on a, any given day, but I would mm-hmm. say if yeah, you look yeah. an aggregate over time, I'm a big believer in color coding my calendar, actually. But okay. my, my goal is really to spend kind of a third, a third, a third of my time. I would say a third of my time is obviously spent on my team and cultivating yeah. my team, growing my people. Then the other two thirds of the time, about a third, I'm actually trying to be out in the marketplace, either directly with customers or with our sales teams, understanding what's working, where the challenges are, actually using our tools, trying to execute campaigns. And then the other third of my time is spent with product and engineering, really going through the roadmap, figuring out what we're building, how are we prioritizing things. Obviously, in that context of those two things are many of the kind of leadership management responsibilities around is our business growing at the pace that it needs to be, you know, what's going on with different customers, what's going on with different parts of the business. I used to work for the IBM company. Yes. And so I am familiar with cultures that have a heavy engineering bent. Mm. How's that for a caveat? Yes. How do you find that engagement with the engineering population at Google? Like it is a super fruitful relationship when it works right. It can be a frustrating relationship when it doesn't. Yeah. How, how do you sort of make sure that that relationship works the best? 
Well, I think the data is the key. I think engineers tend to be more binary one zero. And yep. so I think one of my jobs is to make sense to a rational audience about some of the irrational behaviors that happen in the marketing <laughs> industry, to be totally honest. <laughs> but it's one of the most fun things I do is yeah. is to try. I've, I've been a marketer in many different capacities for a while. And trying to help people in the product and engineering cultures understand why marketers make the decisions they do is an interesting part of the job. And so I think when data can be used to tell that story is the most effective. The other thing that I use is that specific client examples. So, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, an emphatic statement about this is so, if I can say, let me share an example mm. of where this is a problem, that tends to be the more specific you can sure. be, either with data or examples is what works. Use case. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and then live and die for use cases. I love a use case, yeah. I'm fascinated by how marketing has changed in the, you know, 28 years. I've been doing it. Yeah. But I'm always interested in what people's definition of it is. What does marketing mean to you? Well, I think marketing has a critical role in growing businesses and ultimately driving revenue growth. I think we'll probably talk a little bit about this idea of brand versus performance marketing. We're definitely going to get there. Yes. I am obsessed with this idea that everyone's a performance marketer. They just judge and measure the performance differently. I was a brand marketer at Unilever for a while. And so I, I hold that philosophy very dear to me. No one at Unilever is aiming to not be performant in their media spend. Yes. They just are judging it in a different way. So with that lens, I mean, all marketing dollars to me are spent in service of driving profitable growth. Yeah. And that's, I think, where we want to make sure that we're contributing the best value we can at Google. Let's get to the brand performance thing now, sure. since we're here. You know, there have been a lot of sort of stories. The one I use all the time is Kraft Heinz, where, you know, there was a, a movement away from focus on brand development, frankly. They came in lots of different ways, right? Some of that was a lack of investment. Some of that was what I'll call um, an over-focus on, you know, the bottom end of the funnel and and sort of optimization. Yes. And the net outcome of that was, a, you know, they took a write-down on the value of the brand. I mean, they, literally, it's the most sacred you know, horrible act that folks have to do. Where are we in sort of getting brands and marketers to to pay better attention up and down the funnel and be more, to your point, integrated or holistic in how they're thinking about it? I actually feel like we've made progress. Mm. I think that the conversations I'm seeing now, you know, Google obviously has its heartland in performance, yep. traditional performance marketing, air quotes for those of you who can't see. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of our conversations with customers, in part driven by advances in attribution and conversations around, you know, is last click really the thing I should be measuring success against, is actually forcing people to think about the entire consumer journey, all the different touch points and the value of each of those touch points. And I think as a result of that, what people are saying is, oh, wow, there are these different moments yeah. when I can reach a consumer that actually matter to me being able to deliver whatever outcome I'm, I'm trying to accomplish. I think Kraft is, a, is an example where there are several others I can think of that if you focus overly on optimization, what you're missing is the growth of the business, which yep. is finding your next customer. I'm a big believer in how brands grow as a philosophy, which is really all about how you actually reach. This is true for brand, quote unquote, marketers, performance, quote yeah. unquote, marketers. You have to reach an audience, yeah. a new audience, ideally, yeah. than you've ever spoken to before, or you're not going to grow your business. That's right. I am heartened to see more conversations heading in that direction around prospecting, finding new users, those sort of use cases. I agree completely. The, the, the other big challenge, and we've been talking a lot about this this week and, and, and last night, is this idea of the distracted consumer, you know, mm. the, the attention deficit situation. We, you know, we are literally under this avalanche of information, both sort of marketing oriented, new channel oriented, you know, politically oriented. There, there's a mountain of stuff. Mm -hmm. And how we find attachment to attention 
attention is probably one of the most precious commodities that we have. Mm -hmm. How are you talking to folks about how to break through and, and grab those snippets of, of attention that are available? I have two things I want to say about attention. I have a lot to say about attention when it comes to actually measurement in the context of media, and yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about that. But but specifically as it comes to marketers being able to capture attention from their chances to interact with consumers, I think there's a bunch of different things we can talk about. The first thing I would say is that YouTube is best known for its format TrueView, which is a skippable yep. ad format. We often talk about the fact that the first five seconds of a TrueView ad are actually an ad for the ad. They're an invitation yep. to go further. And you have to be incredibly compelling in those first five seconds to help someone understand why they would want to spend more time with you. Yep. Now, it's also a chance for you to tell the people who shouldn't want to spend more time with you, feel free to skip my ad. Mm -hmm. Then you're not paying. It works kind of for everyone, the consumer, the user, and the marketer. And for us, frankly, we want people to be successful on the platform. So the first thing I would say is if you're using TrueView, think very hard about those first five seconds. That actually translates well into our short form format. We have a six-second ad. We sometimes yep. call a bumper ad. Also, same philosophy. How can you be really compelling in the first six seconds? And when we first introduced that product... A lot of people in the creative community were quite concerned. Six seconds, how could I possibly be compelling in six seconds? But we actually found is that creatives love constraints. Mm. They love the idea of how do I actually synthesize yeah. my core message and really cut through? So I would say the skill of being able to be concise and clear in your proposition, who you're trying to connect with, what is should be compelling about the message you're offering, I think is a, is a really big skill in this kind of attention, quote unquote, deficit. At the same time, what we see is that people do spend time with advertising when it sure. when it finds them and it's relevant. So if you look at the people who choose not to skip TrueView and, and actually stay with it, we actually see people watching, you know, a minute and 20 seconds, yeah. two minutes, longer even, if it's actually content that's right for them. So I think the attention thing is sort of how can you be concise and compelling in those first few seconds to invite someone who might be interested and then basically tell your full story if you find the people who are interested. There are other ways you can do that not just TrueView, you also can think, for example, we have a technology called video ad sequencing, where especially thinking about the fact that people use YouTube on their mobile devices, yep. TV screens, desktops, maybe they discover you in a kind of a mobile, very lightweight experience, but they indicate that they're interested in hearing more from you. You might follow up with a longer message at another time that would be more compelling for them to watch. So I think there's a lot of ways for people to think about attention, but for sure it's it's a commodity that is most important for marketers to think about. It's a really great point. And, you know, it's funny, we were talking a bit about this the other day. Um, this idea that I can't sort of prioritize where I'm going to go mm. is, I think, a really interesting one. And I can't rationalize what's going to happen. Let's get into measurement. You ready? Yes. Okay. I am. What do you recommend? What, yeah. when, when somebody walks into your office or cubulet or whatever place yes. that you occupy, <laughs> I, I know in today's day and age, we don't have offices anymore, <laughs> but what do you tell them about how do I find accountability? Yeah. Well, the first thing is, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. So I think it starts really with marketers and agencies being disciplined. This is where the agency has a key role to play. Unilever used to use this language of job to be done. What is the job to be done of this communication? Like, what are you actually trying to accomplish? There's this notion of objective strategy tactics. You know, at what level are you trying to measure something? I think from there, we can help you figure out, like, what are the right ways that you should measure? One of the things we've invested a lot in at YouTube over the last couple of years is making sure that we can be helpful to marketers that have different objectives through the funnel. And so mm. we have very specific solutions now around awareness. We have solutions around consideration. We have solutions around action. One of the things I see that concerns me, I should say, is we see a customer who comes to us and says, look, my objective is to drive awareness of this new product. Yeah. 
And my measurement framework is going to be, I'm going to measure online conversions. <laughs> and I'm like, well, this is the kind of thing that makes an engineer crazy. Sure. Because an engineer says, I can optimize a campaign for online conversions, or I can optimize a campaign for awareness. Yeah. Very hard for me to create a campaign do that does both. Yeah. And so if you're not clear with us on what you're actually trying to accomplish, it's going to be very messy in terms of the outcome. It's funny because the creative and the engineer have the same concern. Because the creative looks at the challenge and says, I can't do both these both things in things. the comms. Sure. So there's an alignment. There, there. is. That's yeah. maybe something we should draw out. That's a very funny thought to have the well, I think <laughs> director of creative and the head of engineering work together on here, that. Here's so pocket theory. There is a lot more similarity than there is difference yeah. in the needs of the strategist or the marketer for both those populations. And if there were greater sort of unification of their shared needs, yes. I think it would hold the marketer, and I hold myself in this bucket, to greater account to deliver mm. a better strategy. I love that. Yep. Totally agree. So there you go. Creative and engineer people unite. Yes. We want to see creative and engineering weddings coming soon. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> yes. What else do you tell them about measurement? So once we say, okay, if, you, if you're trying to accomplish awareness, consideration, or action, yeah. we can tell you our recommendations for how you would measure it. So yep. for example, for awareness, the two core things I would recommend someone measure are how many people did I reach in the target audience that I was going after? So ideally, you would do it in a cross-media way. They'll get to cross-media measurement as one of the areas of challenge, I think, yep. for our industry. But we certainly offer things like unique reach where you can say, okay, I aim to reach either women 18 to 34, or I aim to reach auto enthusiasts, or I aim to reach people in market for whatever. Right. How many of them did I reach? Just tell me total. And then we can tell you, and what was the brand lift? What was the, actually the lift in either perception or awareness or whatever it is, the specific metric you're trying to accomplish? So that's basically the framework I would recommend if you were in the awareness bucket. Got it. If you're in consideration, our best product there is really the TrueView kind of core TrueView product. And there, I think the core things you can measure, again, would be around reach and scale. Because I do think, to your point at the beginning, around what is the job that marketing does, if you are not reaching enough people, you are not growing your business, period, full period. stop. So I think everyone should be measuring how many people they reached of the target they were going after. And then you can measure things like consideration lift, what actually happened in terms of the impact that I was trying to drive. Then finally, if you're looking for actions, this is where a lot of the sort of core, again, air quotes, that's where a lot of the typical kind of online conversion behaviors yeah. come in. And you can either look at micro conversions, you can look at the ultimate conversion you're after, and then you can also think a lot of things around uh, the attribution space. I think underlying all of this, I think, is this p question about cross-media. Because one of the things that I hear most often from marketers is it's great that YouTube or any part of the Google portfolio has helped me solve what was the impact that this yeah. media had on my plan but the question is, how did it compare to the impact that sure. it had on the rest of the choices sure. I could have made? And so there, honestly, the best solution that I always recommend to customers is using MMMs. And actually, some of the best work we've done, and frankly, is with you guys, Data Decisions, yep. and some of the, the partner teams within your agency and other agency groups. We don't actually offer MMMs at Google specifically. We yep. really partner with providing our data. And my biggest recommendation there is making sure you have clean digital data. because. Sure. For many, many years, people were just putting digital into an MMM as like one line item. And the performance of, you know, a network, the ad buy, search, YouTube, I mean, it's Vastly lost. different, yeah, yeah. It's lost. Yeah. So anyway, MMMs tend to be the kind of common equalizer across understanding performance across everything. And I'm actually hearing more of these more, again, air quotes, performance customers talking more about MMMs as well, given some of the challenges that we face in I'm sure we'll talk about privacy and yeah. regulatory environment. Well, we've arrived there. It's we such have. a fantastic segue. <laughs> what is your perspective on what's happening in California? What's coming next? And yeah. what can brands be doing to be more ready? I think it's a really important conversation. Mm. I think that 
I know one of the things you wanted to talk about is what are marketers not talking enough about? That is on the list. And I think that getting ready for this kind of evolution of what consumers expect on the privacy side and therefore what marketers need to be prepared to do is a really important evolution over the next, I would say, three to five years that we all need to be prepared to make. I think the key thing that we're going to need in the next year is getting more clarity. So there have now been a raft of regulations that have launched, GDPR, CCPA. And I think what we haven't seen yet is exactly how regulators are going to help us interpret the laws to be more precise. So there's many different people who are operating in different ways in reaction to GDPR and CCPA. We've taken a pretty conservative stance at Google. One of the things we'll all need to watch for this year is sort of how exactly the regulations play out. How activist will California be? I think it's good that California is... In enforcement, I guess is my... Right. That's the question we're going to need to see. And also Europe and how active they're going to be in enforcing GDPR. The reality of GDPR is it's not been a super enforcement-driven situation, right? I mean, I think the big debate, and we were having this debate last evening with some clients, is, you know, in this political environment where it is probably advantageous from both political perspectives, where will California go? And And I think, you know, it's highly likely they will be more activists, I think. I think we'll be watching to see. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about brand safety. Yes. Tell me what's latest. Yeah, I mean, I'd be delighted to. I would say that I've been in this job about three years. And in that three years, not just my top priority, but the entire YouTube leadership team's top priority has been getting responsibility right. It's an example, I think, of the evolution the overall tech industry has been on, which is everything was, you know, what's possible, all the upside. And what I think we've encountered is, while we are very committed to openness, and openness is actually what drive sort of the incredible growth and success of YouTube is the fact that people can find anything. There's no longer a programmer deciding this is what goes on must-see TV at 8 p.m. on a Thursday night that actually consumers I'm so glad you used that reference. That that warms my heart. Yes. That was like the last time I liked television. (laughs) (laughs) Probably of the same age and vintage in terms of our our original video watching. But Openness actually has brought many, many new voices to bear, and that's very important. At the same time, openness we know is coupled with responsibility, and we are very clear that we have a responsibility to make sure that YouTube is a place that voices can thrive, but in a safe experience for all of our community. So we really have made big changes in, I would say, four areas. We call them the four R's. The first is removing a lot more content, and that comes with policy changes. It comes with lots of people, lots more engineers, huge focus on content removal. We also are trying to reduce the amount of content that's served to users that are not in violation of our community guidelines, but just are not that great. We call them kind of borderline content. We want to make sure that that is very much reduced. And we've scaled that massively in English language over the 2019. 2020 will be a lot about scaling into new languages. But then at the same time, what we're trying to do is raise up great voices. So an example of this is like breaking news. So nowadays, if a breaking news event happens, for example, we were talking about you know, some of the situations in the Middle East right now, if you go on YouTube, you're going to see a breaking news shelf and it's going to have information from a variety of news perspectives. So it'll be Fox News and MSNBC, but you will see a breaking news shelf with accurate information to the extent we believe yep. that the mainstream media is is accurate. So that's a big focus, raising up voices that are that are accurate. And then finally is actually rewarding our creators that are making good content with advertising. And that's where the, really the partnership with advertisers have been a key part of our work. We focused a lot on standards. One of the biggest things we've learned over the last couple of years is there were not clear standards on what is brand, quote unquote, safe slash, let alone brand suitable. So we spent a lot of efforts around standards. We've also really leveraged third parties to give advertisers more confidence that we actually are 99% effective at enforcing kind of their expectations of what safety would look like. 
The good news is we have made a tremendous investment. We have come a very long way. The reality is, as I'm sure you know, and hopefully everyone listening knows, this is not ever a 100% solved problem. It is an unsolvable Um, problem. But it's a 99% solvable problem, and we are committed to doing everything to make sure it stays that way. That's a great answer. Do you think coverage of this discussion has been unfair? No, I do not. Interesting. I think we're doing the things that had to be done to make sure that this was a platform that was great for users and for advertisers. I mean, it's as much about serving our community well as it is about serving the ad community well. And by the way, creators as well, because the creators are modern media companies. They need to make a living from this whole ecosystem. And, you know, we aren't serving them well either if we're not clear with them about what are advertisers' expectations of what is safe. The most common question we get from top creators is, just tell me the guidelines. Yeah. What are the rules of the road? Can I have scissors in my video? If I can't, Brand, I'll take the scissors out. Brands don't know. That's not a criticism, right? I mean, like a lot of things, it's just not something that they have defined, mm. right? And because they haven't had to define it because we grew up in a, a structure in a world controlled. where there were four, we built five things. Right. And now we build 50 things to do our communication and, and brand building. We haven't gotten to that point. Yeah. Anytime you have that situation, you know, kind of is what it is. Yeah. I spent a lot of time sitting with agencies and customers going through, you know, everyone has their do not run list yeah. for TV spots. Sure. Oh, an example in, in the UK, do you know Love Island? Have you ever heard of this show? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, naked yeah, yeah. 20-somethings running around and yeah. whatever. And so we have many of our customers. Yeah, great fair. Who Family are, fair. You know, it's on ITV yeah. or Channel 4. It's on Channel 4, I think. Very popular show. Big, big, big show. And <laughs> we have a number of customers <laughs> who are very brand sensitive on sure. YouTube and are major sponsors of Love Island. And so you're like, let's discuss. Mm -hmm. Honestly, what this points to for me, now that we have cleaned up a lot of the things that people are most worried about, it gets into this, how do we help marketers and agencies understand what is the magic of YouTube and why people are spending so much time with it? And it's not because people are hand-selecting like the 10, 15, 20, 200 pieces of content that are exactly in the same model that you were familiar with from the 80s. It's actually about the authentic voices that are rising. It's about everyone's unique interests. I'm really into baking, so I watch a lot of baking yeah. content. But I also watch late-night TV comedy because I can't be up at midnight watching the original <laughs> James Corden. Right. Right. You know, and so, you know, the diversity of what we're watching is actually what brings users to YouTube. And if marketers aren't benefiting from that and agencies aren't helping them benefit from that, then we're sort of missing the point of where audiences are spending their time, which again goes back to how do you grow your business, sure. which is you have to find the audiences. Yeah. Of the many issues in and around brand safety, yes, how difficult is truth? Oh, like that's the big challenge going forward, in my opinion, mm. is with institutional decline, with lack of trust. Truth is the is the challenge. I think for marketers, ironically, long branded you know purveyors of things that aren't one hundred percent true, and advertising is kind of false, and you don't you can't trust those folks. I actually believe that we have a massive obligation helping the institutions that are the brands we serve to pursue better this idea of truth. The brands that are positioned best for this digital age we live in are authentic brands. You know, we've seen so many examples of this over the last 10 years where people just, you know, the greenwashing thing or not being authentic in their supply chain or how they treat their labor force or Google struggles with a lot of that ourselves. But I think we're pretty upfront about sort of the journey we're on and trying to do right by our workers. I do think this notion of authenticity is absolutely critical in the way marketing works today. How I know that what I'm watching actually happened. Yes, yes. It's already hard. It's going to get bananas hard. This whole issue of, you know, deep fakes is uh, an area that 
certainly we are very much on top of. There were some big issues last year with a famous video of Nancy Pelosi, for example, yeah. that, you know, we definitely took down off the platform. But it's a very complicated area for sure. Deeply um, complicated. Deeply complicated. So what brands are doing the best work on your platform? So it kind of goes back to my measurement framework, mm. which is how do I assess what is great work? For me, great work is people who are driving their business. Mm. That's what I want to see. Sure. You know, we obviously have can and all these, you know, moments when we celebrate great creative work. And there's much great creative work that happens on the platform. For me, the stuff I get most charged up about is stuff that drives business results. Sure. I think there's many great examples. So a few examples recently, you know, I'll, I'll use an at-home example to start with. Google, mm -hmm. actually, we're driving Google Home. Hopefully mm. you have one. I, I do. Okay. Like, courtesy of you. Like, do you like it? I do like it. You know who uses it the most? My Child, daughter. Yes. yes. She's all over Math it. problems or? She does her homework in the kitchen at the counter and that we don't have any other music for her. Oh, nice. And she is physically incapable of doing any homework apparently without 17 distractions like her phone and music. And so it is the way she plays Spotify actually. So the story of what we did over the holidays, it's a very competitive space yeah. and driving intent for purchase of our home device relative to other competitors yes. was kind of our key goal. Yep. And we were actually able to make substantial improvements in actually people's intent to purchase the Google Home Hub um, as a result of a campaign that was targeting a number of different potential audience segments with very customized creative. So that's one of the hottest areas right now is this whole area of how do I actually define different audience segments, serve them really specific creative that's relevant to either the content they're watching sure. or the audience segment that based on their behavior they have fallen into. We made about 80 different ads. I was going to ask, how many executions? We did about 80 yeah. executions. This is definitely one of the big questions is like, yep. how many is the right number? One of the things with the creative community is thinking through the atomization of creative. Uh, so at the same time as you bring it together really quickly in six seconds, but how do you actually break it apart and then have it reconnected and restitched together depending on the context, depending on the audience you're serving? We have a product called Director Mix that basically yeah. enables creatives to do that. But the creative still has a critical role to play in what are the elements that you're going to atomize and then put back together again. We have struggled as an industry with this notion of dynamic content and how to fill the pipes mm. with relevant content since the advent of dynamic content and email 20 years ago. Mm. And the creative community, God bless them, but they continue to struggle with that question. Mm. How do I pick the right levers? Where do I pull a lever? How do I make these decisions in an informed way to drive the sort of splitting apart of the message and then the reassembly of the message in these different combinations? We've been at that theoretical question, in my opinion, for 20 years, and we're still at it. We don't have it nailed as an industry, in my, in my opinion. So it's a, it's a tricky one. I the other think. thing that's that's super obvious is, did you do the content in-house? We did. That's the other thing. You know, and I'm going to say this working for a holding company. But the issue is, if you're going to do something at scale like that, highly unlikely you're going to use your agency to do all of that work. You've got to have some in-house team that does at least the, you know, different versioning of it. Or, you know, it's, it's unlikely you're going to go to Ogilvy and say, make me 80 versions. Well, actually, the way the 80 versions work when we use director mix is it's less about making 80 versions and more about figuring out what are the audio elements, the visual elements, the moving elements yep. that we're going to adjust based on who it's served to. Sure. And basically, the machine is the one that's kind of putting it together. Because I think this director mix execution is, is a little bit of a glimpse of the future. I think this is a really core skill for the creative community to be developing. Interesting. So the platform itself is kind of helping with the frame. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And so I think the, where the creative work comes in is figuring out what are the elements you would tweak based on if you knew you were going to encounter someone who was about, I'll give an example, Campbell Soup did this, was about to watch a Beyonce video, Single Ladies. Yeah. 
what is the element you would tweak of the, maybe the bumper or whatever is the video that ran right before that? Would it be the tagline? Mm. Would it be the visual? In the Campbell Soup example, they went with the tagline and it was like soup for one, question mark. And it was, it's really cute. They did a very cute execution of it. That's a great example. Um, We've had cosmetics brands that actually do it based on lip color, lipstick color. And Mm. so there, obviously the thing that you're trying to feature and breakthrough is around someone's about to watch a beauty tutorial. And the thing I want to feature to them is all the different range of colors that we can offer. So I mean, I think that that's the work of the creative community is to figure out what is the creative element that we would adjust based on who we encounter or when we encounter them. And how much sort of training of creative people in agency environments have you done on, it sounds like the platform's reasonably new, Yeah. on that kind of a platform? We spend a lot of time working with the creative yeah. community. The creative community is huge. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, do you get resistance? No, I, you know, it's not a uniform answer, I would say, across the board. But, but by I say, and large, in general, no. people yeah. are pretty interested. I, I mean, I think that for a while there, there was a tension mm-hmm. between data and creativity, you know, as yeah. if technology was sort of like disrupting the role of creatives. I think we feel very clear that there is a critical role that creatives play. Yeah. It's just redefining what exactly is their highest value contribution. And it's maybe not making, like, executing, producing the 80 executions. It's actually being thoughtful, more yes. strategically upstream around what are the elements you would switch out. Agreed. That's something that will hopefully come over time. The real trick is agencies' entire revenue model is built on the production of things. Yes. So we are the only organization in the world that makes intellectual property and is not on an ongoing basis compensated for that. On an, you know, So Wyden you know, didn't have any kind of attached revenue stream for Just Do It for the 20 years that it became you know, the single most powerful emblem of, of Nike and the heart and soul of that brand. Right. I'm not complaining. I'm just being factual. That would never happen. You know, it wouldn't happen in, in Hollywood that way. It wouldn't happen in the music industry that way. There are ongoing revenue streams whereby people are compensated for the duration of the value. And that's, that's a real trick because as it turns out, Brands don't wake up in the morning and think, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to pay, you know, Wyden or Ogilvy for 20 years for the campaign idea. But we'll solve that some other day. So let's jump to the single most exciting thing for you about 2020. So I think 2020 is going to be a very exciting year. I I think one of the things that we are seeing, and it's funny to be at CES, the CES buzz is always about what's the coolest TV screen that's happening on the floor. Is it 8K? Is it, you know, where is the future going? I mean, one of the things that we're seeing in our business is that in a weird way, things are going back to the future. So more and more of our experiences with YouTube are actually having on the TV screen. And either from casting from your mobile device, using a connected device, having smart TVs all over your house. So the screen proliferation, but specifically the behavior that's back on these giant screens, I think one of the things we're going to start seeing this year in our business is how our advertisers actually going on that next journey with us, which is it was very much from desktop to mobile, and now it's mobile to TV screens again, which is this like weird... And then how do you think about YouTube in the living room or in that sort of shared community experience? Am I using my TV ad? Am I using a different piece of creative? And like one of the amazing, I think, opportunities is you can actually have different streams of creative running on your mobile device and running on your TV screens. The the folks that are probably doing this best now are the movie studios Mm -hmm. where they're running, you know, more of their cinematic trailers in the living room on the TV screen, whereas they're running a different execution on the mobile device, which is a much smaller screen, less detail. But I think that's going to be one of the areas that we're going to experiment a lot with is not just the creative, but the ad experience in general. What we see from consumer behavior is that viewership of YouTube in the living room looks more like viewership of TV content. It's more of a multi-hour, more of a lean back. And so everything we're doing on the YouTube consumer side is oriented around how do we serve the right content in that environment? 
the expectation is you might be watching not just alone, which is a, yep. on your mobile phone. It's a very personal experience. Back to a community experience. So for us, the TV screen is like a very big focus of our innovation efforts, but also our work with marketers. That is super interesting. And I have to confess, I hadn't really thought about it. Sitting here listening to you, thinking about the way that my kids engage with YouTube, I do see them wanting to have it on the television mm. more frequently now because it's, first off, they don't watch broadcast television. Like, they don't even know what it is, right? My daughter doesn't understand that shows occur at a time. Like, yeah. She's just like, why is this not on? You right. know what I mean? So for her, you know, the on-demandness of things is like the principal thing. But because YouTube is such a part of her entertainment consumption, she wants to be like, oh, well, I, I want to watch this on a bigger, because, you know, my 13.3 screen on my, you know, MacBook is only so big. I right. And so there is more of that happening. So it's, it's an interesting consideration because it is a different level of communal thing. Yeah. And there's probably creative opportunities in that. Yes. That are more akin to traditional television. I think so. Yeah, that's interesting. What are you proudest of? In my life, I'm probably proudest of the family I've built, obviously, but... <laughs> that, I love that answer. Good. First week back from vacation. So, you know, I still have the family on the mind. No, um, no, I, it, this is a multifaceted, <laughs> it, like multiple answers are acceptable. I would say, you know, the journey we've really been through with our marketing friends and our, our agency friends on brand safety. It is, you know, an experience I never expected to have in my career. And it was very challenging. And there were some really, really difficult moments in that. But... I actually think that we've come through together as an industry in a much stronger place. The platform is stronger. I hope the whole industry feels that we've started to wrestle with some really tough issues yep. for the industry at large, yeah. not just for YouTube. So I'd say that's the thing I'm probably most proud of having accomplished in the last couple of years. What most worries you? I'm going to go with most frustrates me, if that's, that's okay. Fine. I mean, one of the things that really frustrates me, especially being at CES, is there's so much focus on the next buzziest, coolest thing out there. And I feel like we lose sight of actually what really matters when it comes to growing businesses. We have some of our coolest tools and technologies that already exist. And every meeting I have at CES, the only thing people want to talk to me about is what's next? What's mm. next? And I'm like, look, none of you really have optimized on the stuff we've already given you. Amen. So could you start there? Yeah. I used to work for an ESP years ago and it always cracks me up. You know, email having been dead now for a decade and a half. You look at all these new media companies and what are they doing? Email subscription newsletter. Like mm. it is literally like, you know, 1999. And it is a huge revenue driver for them. And it is something they're working to optimize. And it, to your point, we have not done enough with the tools and the channels that we've had over time. And yet we're always, you know, like, oh, wow, if I could just, you know, knock out how I'm going to figure out the next whiz bang device, you know, like a, my wearable strategy is off. It's like, well, yeah, okay, you got to have one, but could we solve this stuff first? Right. In my experience, that is the singular personality default of most marketers is, there is a the shiny thing. thing coming down the road. Yeah. I mean, the famous adage about marketers is obviously that they get bored with their creative before the consumer does. Oh, for so sure. So this issue of wear out is like, uh, you know, you have not probably gotten your your fair value from that asset that you've created. The history, uh, the creative history of our industry is one in which we have walked away from decent ideas far too early and yeah. far too often. And it takes we, a long time it for does. consumers to get it. It yeah. does, particularly if it's a complex idea. Mm -hmm. All right, you ready for the lightning round? I am. All right. This is, oh, you're getting zen. Yes, I'm I like it. Zen. All right, yes. here we go. Uh, Should I do my air quotes now? Should, okay. You can do them the whole time. <laughs> Every answer is an air quote in the lightning round. Favorite digital experience, not your own. Sorry. Can't pick your own. 
You know what's funny? I love Google Maps. I know that sounds <laughs> that, really funny, but I moved to a new... That's still kind of your own. <laughs> but I, my story about it is that I moved to the Bay Area from the UK about three years ago. Yeah. And I remember arriving. It's really hard to move. I don't know if you've moved cities in recently. No, I, I we, we've been where we are for a long for time. For a long time. But even when you go visit a new city, I think the experience of actually showing up somewhere and being able to get... For example, when I arrive in a new city, I want to get my daughter to school. Sure. Or I arrive in a new city, I want to get myself to work. Yep. I was really struck by how incredible Google Maps was in terms yeah. of helping me in my life. Do you remember paper maps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My summary would be brands that help me get things done yeah. is what I actually really value. I'm a busy working mom who sure. has a pretty crazy life. And so I value people who help me get things done. Best piece of content could be anything, podcast, book, yeah. movie that you've recently consumed. I consumed a lot on vacation, mm -hmm. I have to say. I most recently watched actually some of the clipped up Golden Globe speeches. I was quite struck by Michelle Williams' speech yeah, around choice. I was very moved by that. Maybe that was too political, but um, No, that's not too political. You're moved was, by it. We're allowed to be was, moved by these things. Yes. Right. The semi-forced sanitization of emotion around some of these political things is I don't think that's helpful either. Now, yeah. by the same token, neither is like complete at odds, you know, madness. And the problem is not that we have discourse, it's that we're not having useful discourse. Yeah. So, next one. Favorite social platform, not your own. Oh, come on. Well, I, I, all right, go ahead. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, I have to say YouTube because right, it good. has many social elements What's to number it. Two? Number two. <laughs> you know what? I like the telephone. I have to say, again, referencing the holiday period. Yeah. You know, I feel really out of touch during the year a lot of times with good friends and family. And yeah. I think that the holidays give me time to really spend some quality time connecting with people. So, I'm more of a quality over quantity consumer these days. So I'm going to go with the telephone. Have you walked away from your social media usage at all? I have significantly curbed my social media usage, I would say, over the last five years. If yeah. you looked at what I used to spend time doing versus what I spend time doing now. And is that a time thing or is it driven by something else? I think it's time, but also what I enjoy spending my time with. I spend a lot of time with podcasts now. Huge. And now I've discovered the human element. So I will be spending time <laughs> with the human element as well. But you I make really, me so happy. I really enjoy podcasts. I now, in my life on the Bay Area, I commute in my car. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah, I, I do too. I'm a, a huge consumer in addition to whatever it is that we call what I'm doing right now. Participant. Best career advice either given or received. My top career advice is self-knowledge. I think self-knowledge is the access to power. I think that knowing what you're great at and leveraging and building what you're great at and then mitigating your weaknesses, I'd say that is the entire key to success in my opinion. That's a great answer. A thing people should know about you, but they don't. We, we did some work as a team around influencing styles. And so anyone who is looking to influence me, my preferred style to influence me is called stating, which is I like people who state an opinion. There you go. That's leverageable. Our audience. It is. That, that is For something anyone our, who is looking to our leverage. Our entire audience can use that. <laughs> Least favorite tech and media jargon. Can I go with my most favorite? Sure. Okay. So we have it's an your show. We have an expression. <laughs> we have an expression at Google TLDR. Do you are you familiar with TLDR? Uh, it's not no. from Google. I think it's a meme, but it's sort of okay. been widely adopted and it means too long. Didn't read or don't read. Uh, okay. And it's basically is the summary part of an email that basically, you know, you get these long treatises about yep. the 17 reasons why you should do XYZ. Yep. I like the TLDR. Just give me the TLDR. So it's part of my, I like to be influenced through stating. I was going to say, this Just is related. The TLDR. This is yes. related. Last question. Yes. When you sort of think about the power and opportunity of what you have in your brand, what's the most emotional part of that for you? The oh, thing that makes you most attached to the work that you do? 
you know, it's really interesting because we spent time with my team last year working on our mission and like, what is our team's mission and purpose? And what was interesting about that work is you realize different people connect to the work we do and for different reasons. So many, many people on my team and in the, the wider team that works on monetizing YouTube with advertising is very motivated by helping to give new voices access to the world. And mm. basically creators' lifeblood is advertising. And we are the ones who actually enable that. For me personally, though, the thing that really gets me charged up is I look at the disconnect between where consumers are spending their time where advertisers are spending their dollars, and it makes me crazy. So inefficiency in the world is mm. something that really goads me and sure. gets me going. And I just feel that we can be contributing much better growth to businesses than we are today. And that is honestly what motivates me very much to do the work I do. Thank you so much. You've been absolutely fantastic. Really no fun. air quotes about that <laughs> at all. It's been really fun. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks so much. All right, good. You have just made it through another episode of The Human Element. Thanks so much for listening. Please, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. And if you are so motivated, give us a like or subscribe. And we'll be back out to you real soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.